0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Catherine M. Marino, an assistant professor of history at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her book, Feminism for the Americas, The Making of an International Human Rights Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is a topic of this episode. Marino follows many Latin American and Caribbean women in the first half of the 20th century, who not only championed feminism for the continent, but also contributed to defining the meaning of international human rights. They drove a transnational movement for women's suffrage that included equal work and maternity rights, but also for the self-determination of their nations, rejecting U.S. imperialism. Marino draws attention to the contributions of women such as the Brazilian Bertha Lutz, Cuban Clara Gonzalez, and Chilean Marta Vergara, who have yet to receive significant place in human rights history. The work of Latin American and Caribbean feminists was impeded by internal race and class conflict, insufficient funding, lack of government support, and by imperial assumptions of U.S. feminists. Their tenacious efforts through multiple organizations, gatherings, and personal networks led to the inclusion of women's rights in the global human rights framework and assured that economic and social rights would not be sidelined. The book also illuminates the ideological differences that has plagued the global feminist movement. Here is my conversation with Catherine M. Marino.
1: Now let me introduce you to the author, Catherine Marino. Hello, Catherine, how are you? Hi Lillian, I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Welcome to the show and
0: thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book adds a significant component to understanding how the history the history of feminism, but also the history of human rights in Latin Americans, a women's role in that, which is fascinating. Uh, but before we get into it, tell us about yourself, your background and how you came to write Feminism for the Americas. <laughs>
1: Yeah. The book started as my dissertation in graduate school. I went to um, Stanford to work with Estelle Friedman. I was interested in the history of feminism, actually, especially in the United States. But the very first research seminar I took was a U.S. and the world seminar that really pushed all of us to put our U.S. interests into global transnational perspectives. And in the archives at Stanford, I, I found the papers of a U.S woman, pacifist, feminist from the early 20th century, who actually was a historian of Latin America. And she was, turns out, good friends with the Brazilian feminist Berta Lutz. And I wrote a paper about their friendship and mutual influence on each other, which was pretty significant, and realized in writing that paper that there was this this whole um, network of inter-American feminist organizations, meetings, um, informal and formal congresses. And so I um, became really interested in, in studying this Pan-American feminist movement in the interwar years. I, I started with the um, the papers of the Inter-American Commission of Women, which gave organizational form to Pan-American feminism. They were pushing women's rights treaties into Pan-American Union conferences and the papers were in Doris Stevens's archives, that, who, is the, who was the chair of this commission for about a decade in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the Schlesinger Library. It's a huge collection. Um, and it was really clear how significant this group was because feminist groups from every you know country in the Americas were in correspondence with her. And. Um, But it was also clear that her archives were not telling me the whole story. And I was, that there were tensions that were emerging around um, how to best define feminism and around Stevens's own leadership of the group. So I became really interested in how Latin American feminists were writing to each other about inter American feminism when they weren't writing to Doris Stevens. And um, that led me to doing archival research in a number of different feminist papers. Um, the book looks at, at five Latin American feminists, in addition to Stevens, um, from Uruguay, Brazil, Chile, um, Panama, uh, I'm sorry, Cuba, Panama, Chile, Brazil, and Uruguay. And, um, and so it was really engaging with the, in, the, in the sort of archives of these women that I discovered a whole different story about inter-American feminism, um, that they were forging these alliances with each other sometimes um, that Stevens didn't even know about because they uh, disagreed with the way that Doris Stevens defined the Equal Rights Treaty, defined inter-American feminism, and they wanted Latin American leadership really over the commission and this movement. Um, And the book is really structured around these relationships, I mean, it moves chronologically through these different inter American congresses, um, but it really is about these uh, friendships and conflicts among these six different activists and really argues that these de- interpersonal dynamics are actually critical to the political outcome of the movement. Okay, let, Catherine, let me. Uh,
0: your book does have a lot of people and organization events, it's very, very detailed. Uh, deep research into archives, uh which is very impressive in and of itself. But before we get into into get into the book itself, I want you to give people who don't really under know the uh, the the setting, the political tensions there that, that existed outside of feminism between the United States and Latin America. What was that relationship at early 20th century in which all this is going to
1: occur? Right. Yeah. So I mean I think there are a few different major historical contexts that inspired both Pan-Americanism and then also Um, Pan-Hispanism. Pan-Americanism was um, entering a new stage after the First World War, um, sort of destroyed notions of European cultural superiority. Um, Latin American nations uh, started these new Pan-American collaborations with the United States um, and and it wasn't just about diplomacy or Pan American union congresses. It was about sort of, um, you know, standards around hygiene and welfare. There were Pan American child congresses. There were Pan American congresses around, um, the press and around culture. And so these women's congresses and, and efforts really emerged during that period after world war one. But the, um, and the other really significant context was of course US empire in the Americas the um political military uh, economic interventions in the region that were obviously very different in different parts of the Americas but actually became this bond among Um, Spanish-speaking Latin American feminists of the period, at least a significant, significant groups of them. So um, pan-Hispanism was this uh, project initiated by Latin American modernists in the late 19th century, and that really grew in the early 20th century, um, and basically celebrated the Spanish-speaking Latin American culture as an antidote to the um, materialist, capitalist, uh, U.S. imperialist, Anglo-American culture. And um, this, I argue in the book, was just as powerful at galvanizing uh, Latin American feminists' bonds with each other as uh, Pan-American institutional networks. And that actually, even though these Two kind of nodes were sometimes in conflict with each other. They also worked in synergy um, so sometimes feminists were part of these pan american congresses, but their real allegiances were toward a more anti imperialist latin american led ki- types of um, of, uh, of movements okay so how uh, so let me ask you
0: the, about uh, the history of feminism in Latin America, which you've already beginning to talk about its inceptions and uh where it came from uh out of other larger concerns uh in the continent, but how did these uh how has the uh, the historiography uh of feminism in Latin America been written and and also you know, uh, this idea that Latin American feminists were more maternalistic, the maternalism of that, of the continent and and, and written from um, U.S. historians who are looking at it and defining it that way. Can you tell, can you talk a little bit about the
1: problems with writing the history of Latin American feminism? Yeah, thank you. Those are great questions. I mean, I would say that one of the biggest arguments of the book is um, that, you know, we usually think about this narrative of feminism globally as one that was, you know, that this history started with the United States and Western Europe and then trickled down to other parts of the world. Um, And the book in general is trying to challenge that argument and or that narrative with the argument that Latin American feminists were really in the vanguard of global feminism and international human rights. And um, I think that one of the ways in which Latin American feminism has been dismissed in historiography is through this argument that it was only this maternalist kind of movement that that, in other words, it identified women as mothers as um, and not as equals to men, that it resisted a sort of equal rights language and so didn't have the sort of radicalism maybe of the US or, or Western Europe variants of feminism and oh go ahead which was one
0: of the which one of the most uh, I think really important points in your book uh, about this maternalism because they they did emphasize mothers, but it was in a very radical sort of revolutionary way.
1: It wasn't in a, uh, a traditional sort of way that we think about. Right, thank you. Yes, um that is one of the major takeaways. Um they were thinking about motherhood in that one of their key goals was maternity legislation um for working women and they also, you know, time paid time off from work and also ch- paid uh state-sponsored childcare which um they were achieving in in legislative ways in these years um which, you know, the United States has never achieved. And also, um, and, and also they were promoting rights of illegitimate children and their mothers in Latin America, the, um, the, their children born out of wedlock had fewer rights than those who were born, um, to formerly married parents. And, and so in all these ways, you know, mother parenting and childcare and um, motherhood were important to Latin American feminists, but increasingly in these years, they were framing these demands in terms of women's rights and even as human rights, um, which as you say, is quite radical and revolutionary and um, certainly more, more radical and revolutionary than the types of language around these things that was coming out of, The mouths of U.S. um, feminists at the time, who were their interlocutors in these Pan American engagements.
0: Yeah, it seemed like they were they were advocating Latin America, and feminists were advocating the inclusion of of in recognition of women's um, biological uh, role as important, significant part of humanity, part of being a human being, and that you couldn't really define human rights without consideration
1: of that role. Exactly. I mean, I think that they were calling for what we, for the society to value what we call reproductive labor today. And um, and absolutely, I think that they were saying that this is important to society and to, um and to you know human welfare and also to the autonomy and equality um, of of women as well um really vital they were coupling you know demands for the right to vote and for civil rights under the law with demands for you know economic uh, equal rights equal pay for equal work social rights things like maternity legislation and um and um, and also coupling these demands also with sort of a, an awareness that they were connected regionally and globally as well.
0: Now, the U.S. Uh, feminists, uh, right after the war, were immersed in, in trying to get suffrage, the vote, and uh, Carrie Chapman Catt uh, went to Latin America. Why did Cat and the U.S. feminists uh,
1: seek out or look for support in Latin America. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So Carrie Chapman catt after the the 20, the nineteenth amendment was passed in nineteen twenty, she um, created the League of Women Voters, which was going to train U.S. women to be political citizens, and um, and also she that group became really interested in sort of. Being beneficent, sort of, uh, um, you know, missionaries to the world in a way of bringing women's rights to to Latin America. In fact, I mean, this was also very much bound up in Pan American um, diplomatic and economic considerations. So there was a big Pan American conference in Baltimore in 1922, and there's actually correspondence from the you know League of Women Voters in Baltimore who initiated it, showing that it's actually you know, um, diplomatic representatives and representatives around the commerce around the port of Baltimore who want to enhance trade with Latin America, um, and that they're pushing this women's conference. So there were ways in which us, you know, diplomatic and imperial, uh, designs were baked into sort of the league of women voters goals around this conference itself. But, um, Kat did work with, uh, a number of Latin American feminists and particularly was close with the Brazilian feminist Berta Lutz. And, um, after that 1922 conference toured Latin America, visiting a number of countries, um, and her conclusion from that trip was that Latin American countries were 40 years behind the United States. She, in terms of suffrage activism, she really was disappointed by what she saw as a lack of organizing there, so she published these comments and they were widely disseminated in the Latin American press, and they really angered uh, various Latin American feminist groups and and it actually the opposition to cats sort of imperial feminist um, charges led to the formation of stronger bonds between Spanish-speaking Latin American feminists. Um, you see this language in these inter-American Congresses where Cuban and Panamanian feminists are now saying, um, because in addition to Kat's charge that they were 40 years behind the US, she also said she doubted that they were politically ready to be citizens or to, to um engage in the electoral process. So these feminists would would refer continually to Kat's, you know, aspersions and basically announce that, you know, Latin American feminists were um needed to sort of take charge and um and rejected the sort of imperial feminism of cat. So
0: basically, um cats actually did them a favor in a way because it it brought them together and then you describe what is uh call what you call feminismo americano. Can you, can you talk about what that was what that idea was because it it was a response.
1: Absolutely. Um It was this brand of inter-American feminism that absolutely was a response not only to U.S. imperialism in the region, but also to U.S. feminist imperialism. Um, And you see this emerge both in response to Kat, but even more powerfully in response to Doris Stevens. It was a um, particularly because Doris Stevens upheld uh, a very narrow definition of feminism, according to the Latin American women with whom she was engaging. Stevens only demanded or or sought equal rights under the law, political and civil equality. She rejected all these other goals, maternity legislation, um, anti-imperialism, anti-fascism in the 30s. And so Latin American feminists um, really organized around their own concept of feminismo americano, which indeed was this broader movement that upheld multiple goals, and and um, especially grew powerful in the mid to late 30s and early 40s um, in these anti-fascist mobilizations that were that were um, emerging throughout the region, and um, and so it is this this it defines this broader Latin American feminist-led uh, transnational movement that um, not only challenged. Um, U.S. empire, but also the idea that Latin American feminists should somehow be subservient to U.S. feminists um, and really proclaim their leadership of the movement. Now, you it, it, it's easy to, because you have this
0: uh, title, this, uh, I guess, yeah, name, that Minissimo Americano, it's really easy to think that, you know, and I think a lot of people think this about Latin America, you know, it's like one big country and everybody's the same. And when you're looking at the fascinating group of women that you deal with, which is like p- women like Bertha Lutz and Ophelia Dominguez and Navarro and Clara Gonzalez and so many others that you have in here, there are tensions between among these women. It wasn't all just wonderful. You know, we're all together in the sisterhood of Latin America. Uh, so there were some, there were tensions, there were differences. Can you talk a little bit about? And that kind of uh probably held him back, and he wrote it some some progress that they could have made because of that. Can you talk a little bit about what the, what was uh working within the
1: continent against them? Yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about a sort of counterfactual of how could it have been different had they all been united but yes i mean i i um these six different women were in some ways quite similar, in that they were all. You know, white or mestiza, in their national context. they all had access to education um, and um, were had sort of the racial and educational privilege and personal connections to go to international conferences. Although, although not all the Latin American feminists really had access to the resources that, say, Doris Stevens did, and that in itself became a huge point of contention. But um, they are, as you say, really different from each other as well, um, and. For instance, two of them joined the communist parties in their countries. Um, two of them were more socialist feminists, but never, co- never members of, of the communist party. And then Bertha really stands out for being different. She um, believed really that Portuguese-speaking feminists and English-speaking feminists were superior to Spanish-speaking feminists, and um, was quite explicit about this uh, this racism. She she was. Warren, um, she her her mother was a, a British woman, and her father was a um, um a Brazilian scientist. And she um she had this sense that the uh United States and Great Britain were really the innovators of of feminism globally. And so she sought out these alliances with them and often rejected alliances with Spanish-speaking women, even though she actually shared some common. Some really common goals with them, but at the same time, I tried to show how um, she actually did open up opportunities for um, different variants of of Latin American feminists to come together. Most critically, at this 1933 Pan American Conference, she was diligently working um, against. Um, Doris Stevens really trying to create openings for Latin American feminists to ultimately become the chair of the commission. Doris Stevens held this post for a decade and that led Latin American feminists to call her the quote dictator of the Inter-American Commission of Women. And so let's actually created an opening by pushing for a resolution that would say the chair needs to rotate, which Latin American feminists then took up at the next Inter-American conference in 1938 and indeed pushed Stevens out as chair. Um, it's, it's interesting because in 1945, it's actually Berta Lutz, who, with a group of other Latin American feminists, is really critical to um, – at the, the conference that creates the United Nations in San Francisco, pushing women's rights into the United Nations Charter and into its definition of human rights and proposing what becomes the UN's Commission on the Status of Women – and again, what really bonds her with for the first time really with Spanish-speaking feminists in a common mission is the fact that at that conference, she perceives herself um, to be a racial other in the eyes of the US and British delegates. And also because she she's not getting support from US and British women at this conference who actually are opposed to the inclusion of women's rights in the UN Charter. So there's this way in which she actually does see herself um, for the first time as a quote Latin American and really allies herself with the block of Latin American delegates who are pushing for various things at this conference, including human rights, and with countries from the quote smaller powers that are also pushing for human rights. Um, so so yes, I think that the... Um, that I tried to show the complexity of this movement by by showing the heterogeneity of feminisms even within Latin America, and in some ways the book is really just a starting point. I hope for people to explore the many other kinds of feminisms that were emerging in the region. Um, so it's definitely not the conclusive, you know, definitive story of feminism in Latin America in this time um but in fact i think that these uh conflicts were actually productive that the that it's through these um differences in feminist vision that uh the most productive work actually comes comes through so in because way, they, they
0: were much more, they were much more willing. It seemed to me to work across these differences, to ignore some differences and say, "Okay, you're a communist, but I'll still work with
1: you." That's uh, that- true. Yeah, absolutely. I, you see that especially with Paulina Luisi, who was connected to all of these different uh, Latin American feminists of different political stripes. And yes, she was not a, a member of the Communist Party in Uruguay, but she worked so closely with Alfelia uh, Dominguez Navarro, who was a um, yeah, a member of the Communist Party in, in Mexico and in Cuba.
0: Now, after the uh, uh, women got uh, received the vote here in the United States, uh, the National Women's Party che- changed gears and went after trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment verified. Mm-hmm. And the way the Equal Rights Amendment was was worded and the way it was sold or presented was very narrow. So why, why did... Uh, Latin American women uh, resist uh, the definition of of the Equal Rights Amendment and what mm-hmm. it was being proposed proposing, it not only in the United States, but I think they wanted to make this an international thing.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the main goal of the Inter American Commission of Women was to push this Equal Rights Treaty, which itself was pretty. Um, Revolutionary! It was an international treaty demanding women's rights, so a proto-human rights instrument. You know, long before the UN Declaration of Human Rights existed, and um, and it and it was really modeled after the Equal Rights Amendment in the United States, which um, yes, Alice Paul and National Women's Party members in the U.S. had tried had pushed into Congress in 1923, but it was stalled there, and it remains. Um, you know, we have. Um, we have these new efforts today, actually, to um, to finally um, ratify it. So basically, the the Latin American feminists weren't really opposed to the Equal Rights Treaty, and in fact, they organized um, really effectively around the treaty and and used it in a lot of cases nationally to push different legislation and to push their own agendas. But um, what they objected to was that this was the only an exclusive definition of of feminism for Doris Stevens and the only thing she wanted the commission to do basically. So a lot of these Latin American feminists who actually helped start the commission had much broader goals for the commission and for inter-American feminism. They wanted these demands around anti-imperialism to be part of the, the mission. They wanted social and economic rights to be part of the definition and in the 1930s, the book talks about how um, feminists like Marta Vergara from Chile, who was part of a, a leader of a popular front feminist group there, and other feminists actually did expand the meaning of the Equal Rights Treaty so that it was compatible with um, state-sponsored maternity legislation and with economic rights that they were seeking. Um, but it was really the um, the sort of intractable way that Doris Stevens dug her heels in and and refused to um, have the commission take on any other um, issues aside from equal political and civil rights under the law that frustrated so many of them. In the United States context, the Equal Rights uh, Amendment was dividing a wide swath of progressive reformers that had formerly been united in the suffrage cause. And this was because many women who worked with um, labor uh, and social reformers believed that the Equal Rights Amendment would take away these hard-fought protective labor laws that they had worked so hard to pass in the United States that regulated the hours and conditions of women's work. And in the absence of you know, labor unions for many working women, these forms of protective labor legislation were indeed helpful to protecting them from exploitation on the job. Um, so they feared the Equal Rights Amendment would actually destroy that protection Also, the National Women's Party was um, not popular or did not ally uh, with African-American women's groups because they actually, you know, focused on the single issue of the Equal Rights Amendment to the exclusion of all other issues. And they even allied with um, Southern legislators and who were um, opposed to anti-lynching legislation if they promised to promote the Equal Rights Amendment. So in the United States, the National Women's Party and its Equal Rights Amendment came to really define the word, quote, feminism in these years. And the people who define themselves as feminists were increasingly this relatively small group of white, mostly middle class women who were in the National Women's Party. Um, So for that reason, the National Women's Party believed that Pushing its agenda into the international realm, pushing an equal rights treaty into Pan-American Union meetings and into the League of Nations would actually help them push the Equal Rights Amendment domestically in the United States.
0: Okay. Now, uh, we're going to talk about Doris Stevens now (laughs) because she's like looms large in the book and she is the protagonist. Uh, It seems like everything she does uh, is troublesome. Uh, from beginning to end, her attitude, her control of funding, her control of of the management of the Inter American Commission on Women. Uh, can you can you talk about Dora Stevens? Yeah, you've already mm-hmm. mentioned her, but she is so big in your book, and she's so problematic. <laughs>
1: At right. least it
0: was for me. Yeah, you know, you just want to choke her. Uh, <laughs> what was her? What was her? Her. Institutional agenda? What was her Mm -hmm. personal agenda? And what were her assumptions? She had many assumptions about Latin America and about what women needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does tend to represent the worst of American
1: attitude Mm -hmm. towards other people. Right. I mean, there are, she became the sort of bet, bet noir of so many Latin American feminists. And it's really remarkable how much. You see her name, you know, pop up in the Latin American press in different countries where people are quite critical of of her because it in some ways the Inter-American Commission of Women became a cult of personality around her, um, which was sort of by her design. Um, she, you know, was really instrumental in its creation. She basically, gate crashed the 1928 Inter-American Congress conference in Havana with a group of Cuban feminists and some other National Women's Party members. And because of her, um, you know, dramatic acts, she really gained a high profile for the commission. So, I mean, she was this veteran suffragist. She had been one of the women who was imprisoned for picketing the White House for women's suffrage in the U.S. And she wrote a book about it called Jailed for Freedom. And in some ways, her um, acts of defiance against the U.S. government really earned her admiration from a lot of Latin American diplomats and feminists, um, which, uh, you know, won, won their support of her, at least in the early years. And even at the end of the commission, she still had a group of supporters. But um, increasingly, she sort of shaped the commission around her agenda and her exclusive definition of feminism, the Equal Rights Treaty, um, what I found most revealing about looking at these, how these Latin American feminists were writing to each other when they weren't writing to Stevens was really the, the extent to which her control over the commission bothered them. And the fact that she was raising a huge, well, a lot of money from the Carnegie Endowment for Peace um, that supported her travels to these conferences internationally and her stays at rather lavish hotels, but she didn't share this money um, equitably. She barely shared the money at all with, with Latin American commissioners. So you have the case of a Panamanian feminist, Clara Gonzalez, who was one of the very first people to be named to the commission. The commission was supposed to include one woman from every Republic in the Western hemisphere and Panama, um, Uh, named Clara Gonzalez initially. She was um, studying in the United States on a um, fellowship from the Panamanian government. So she actually got to work in the DC headquarters of the commission in the Pan-American Union for a few years and really devoted enormous time and energy to legal research that helped them put together this huge compendium of women's status throughout legal status throughout the Americas. They would use this tome um, to argue for the Equal Rights Treaty at these conferences. And yet she was never paid, um, never paid any sort of salary, even though Stevens did give a salary to some other um, US helpers. She was never given money from Stevens to attend any international conferences where her work would have been promoted. Um, And um, she also was really upset that Clara Gonzalez was criticizing the commission. Claire, at the first commission meeting in Havana, Clara Gonzalez and another commissioner pointed out that only a few of the Latin American feminist um, commissioners had even been appointed to the commission, and that many of these who had been appointed were actually the relatives of diplomats in the region and not even feminist leaders in their countries. And this outraged Stevens and. Um, So in any case, it's and and Gonzalez then left the the commission or left the left the U.S. and remained the commissioner, but um, definitely didn't ally closely with Stevens. Um, The Cuban feminist Ophelia Dominguez Navarro, who is never a member commissioner in the Inter-American Commission of Women, um, really publicized these things to feminists throughout the Americas. She wrote. Um, A newspaper, she was profiled in a newspaper article where she was critiquing Stevens's control over the group. And then she wrote um, shared correspondence with Stevens that was pretty, um, um, that demonstrated Stevens's sort of uh, lack of understanding of politics in Cuba and, um, and basically disseminated this to feminist groups throughout the Americas. Um, That's a long winded response to your, your question. But um, I think that Stevens believed she knew what was best for Latin American countries. She thought that as the veteran of a successful suffrage movement in the United States, she was the rightful leader for feminism for the Americas. And also, um, you know, racial notions of racial and cultural superiority were um, absolutely playing a role where you have correspondence between her and her um, husband with clearly racist um, Descriptions of Latin American, you know, people, and that really show that she believed she was um, superior to to them. So she I'm,
0: she controlled she controlled the commission, and meant, which meant she controlled the funding. Let me ask you: the funding was a big part of this because the Latin American women uh, did not have as much access to funds right. from their own country. Is it right. because she assumed that? Uh, that their countries would
1: fund them, she did have this way of of basically chiding, you know, them if they weren't able to get funding. She would say, "Well, do what do what you know U.S. feminists would do, and just have people raise money and you know get people to send money." Really, yeah, not realizing. I mean she wasn't stupid, you know, so it I do wonder, you know, to what extent she just didn't want other people at this at these conferences who would mess with her agenda. You know, she really wanted to sort of control the agenda, so I think it's possible she would say these things and realize it wasn't even going to be possible for some of these women to get there. But in other cases she really did want people to be there, so she financially helped out a few feminists who she thought were going to enhance her agenda. She offered to pay for Marta Vergara's travels um, to a few Pan-American conferences. Marta Vergara, the Chilean feminist, had actually been really helpful in the League of Nations when she was living in Europe um, around these nationality treaties that the commission was working on. And she helped out a few other um, commissioners financially who I think she believed were loyal to her and um and pushing for the same exact goals as her. I think you see um her withholding funding from Clara Gonzalez because she knew that Gonzalez didn't agree with how she was running the commission and I don't think she wanted Gonzalez's um, you know agendas or uh, criticisms at there, the
0: Yeah, um, there was one there was one instance where, where you describe her uh, getting uh, accommodations for some Latin American delegates to a conference, but she got them uh, like rooms in in a in a private residence that was far away from the conference
1: site. Right, and critically, it was one that was being offered to them by the Peruvian government in 1938, which many people throughout the region identified as being in line with you know Nazi fascism, um, and so. So, for political reasons, these feminists who were there to re- help with the commission—you um, know, from Argentina, from Chile—who were actually Popular Front feminists, who were anti-fascists—they were outraged at the thought of staying in a in a you know private government-sponsored um, residence where they thought where they knew they would be being surveilled. Um, and so, yes, she um, she. Just the kind of stunts that she pulled that just drove me up the wall. Right. I mean, <laughs> it, yes. I mean, it, it, what I—it's—it's it's fascinating her, her sort of single-minded commitment to pushing for women's suffrage throughout the Americas and pushing for this equal rights treaty. It was so single-minded and and sort of extreme that she um, favored you know, forging relationships with dictators in the region as long as they pushed for women's suffrage. And she, you know, said even that, yes, women's political rights still progress under dictatorships. Um, so it was that kind of tunnel vision that really infuriated Latin American feminists, you know, most notoriously, she forged this cozy relationship with Trujillo in the Dominican Republic in 1938, right after the mass slaughter of, um, of, of Haitians on the border that he had ordered. And, you know, he was using this as a way to sort of portray himself as democratic. But Stevens called him, you know, celebrated him for his support for the Equal Rights Treaty at this moment. And that's really um, what led these Latin, a lot of Latin American feminists to call her a quote fascist and um, to really join forces to push her out as the head of the commission.
0: Okay, let's talk about... Uh, the Popular Front, Pan American Feminism, and how that changed the agenda.
1: Mm-hmm. So, right, this was a movement that emerged with the rise of Popular Front groups throughout not only Europe but in the throughout the Americas. Um, so, after the Great Depression and the rise of um, both you know, um, right-wing dictatorships in Europe, but also throughout the Americas, there was a flourishing of socialist and communist organizing and of these popular front groups that were, um, uniting around the rights of labor and around, um, international causes in Latin America, like the nationalization of Mexican oil, um, the national Puerto Rican, um, nationalism and um, the Spanish Civil War. And increasingly, because of the power of inter-American feminism, women's rights, um, Latin American feminists who, who were seeking these broad goals were aware of the way that fascism was eroding women's rights in various regions. And also the Popular Front itself functioned as a social movement that often became this electoral coalition of political parties. So So pushing for women's rights and even women's suffrage became part of these Popular Front goals. But as a whole, Popular Front Pan-American feminism really came to define feminismo americano, which was this movement that included and foregrounded social and economic rights, and increasingly also um, united with groups that were calling for um, women's rights alongside the rights of all, regardless of race, uh, class or religion.
0: Now, Latin American feminists saw
1: women's rights as
0: critical to human rights, to the definition of human rights. And I've read I've read quite a lot about the human rights uh, history, and why. And this was all new to me: uh, the uh, presence of Latin American women and how they pushed to, to include in human rights women and the specific, special rights of women as mothers, as workers, eco- their economic and social rights as women. Why, had, why was that not considered from the get-go in the formation of the framework for human rights? And why did American feminists not feel the same? Why, why, that, that, that right there, that's a, that is the nut, I think, of of your book that is like trying to figure out why did American feminists not see women's rights as so critically important to be included in the framework of human rights. that was taking shape at that time.
1: Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it was when I first started doing this research as well, I was surprised by the ways in which, you know, a, Eleanor Roosevelt, for instance, she celebrated for the, her work for the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it, she actually really resisted including women's rights into the declaration. She believed that just a gender neutral sort of, you know, human rights would would do justice. Um, and she represented this, this growing view in the United States of, of these, you know, progressive women who... Um, at the time after the second world war believed it was either too divisive or not important enough to include women's rights in the founding UN charter. And British women felt similarly to one on, on one hand, they, um, believed that in their own countries, women had achieved remarkable political gains. You know, in the FDR government, numerous women were appointed in the government for the first in, in new roles. And, um, and British feminists also had similar things to say about the role of, of women in England, but in the U.S. and even in the British context, there were these um, the the Equal Rights Amendment debate was was really profoundly shaping the way that that um, these reformers talked about women's rights or didn't talk about women's rights. So Eleanor Roosevelt was part of this cohort of women um, with that included those in the women's uh, in the Children's Bureau, in um, the Women's Bureau, in the Department of Labor, and also a lot of women's groups like the League of Women Voters and other major organizations of women that opposed the Equal Rights Amendments and, and really dug their heels in. And it skewed the way they talked about um, about women's rights. I mean, they, they, they basically avoided anything that smacked of equal rights, including the terms women's rights. I mean, they, they really tried to shift the agenda of the Pan American, of the Inter-American Commission of Women away from anything that emphatically demanded equal rights for, you know, politically or of civ- civ- civilly, which frustrated Latin American women. And so they, um, they actually objected to the inclusion of women's rights in the UN charter in 1945. And, um, I mean, I should also note that one of the most vehement opponents to this was the Gilder was Virginia Gildersleeve, who was, um, a, um, an educator, a Dean of Barnard college, who was the only woman on the U S delegation to the UN, um, the conference that created the UN, and in some ways, she also just opposed this because she um, was representing the U.S. U.S. interests at this conference. And in her memoirs, she says um, a number of things to the effect that I was, you know, I wasn't a woman leader at this conference, or a woman delegate at this conference. I was just a delegate. I and they really didn't. She and these British delegates who are women didn't want to be um, viewed as representing their their genders. They just wanted to be. Diplomats, in a way, um, right? So- and you know
0: what that that but that particular attitude at mid-century in America um, ran across all kinds of di- all kinds of uh, domains and disciplines. You know, among writers and uh, women artists. You know, I'm thinking about Georgia O'Keeffe that I just did a podcast on. Mm. Uh, women who are very successful in, in previously in domains that they had been excluded before. Mm -hmm. And when they entered those were allowed entry, they wanted, they didn't want to be known as a woman, this or that. They just wanted to be known as a leader. Right. uh, Or whatever, uh, whatever, you know, domain they entered. Then it was very typical. It's
1: really interesting. It's true. It is typical of that period of the thirties and forties. Definitely. Okay. So
0: you've got, so you've got, Latin American women really taking the lead and in, in, in pressing to the inclusion of, of women's rights into the human rights agenda, how successful were they?
1: I think that they were quite successful um, in some ways. I mean, I think that they they definitely were raising the consciousness of some of their US counterparts around the need to sort of vociferously push for things like maternity legislation and to call out a human right. There's, you know, a section where this representative from the Women's Bureau, um, you know, really is learning a lot. From She finds that her role as, as teacher is being reversed into the role of student for these Latin American feminists who are impressing this agenda on her. And then when you look at the work that they did in 1945 at the San Francisco conference that created the UN, you really see how effective they were. They were drawing on, you know, two decades of pan-American feminist organizing, of pushing these resolutions into inter-American conferences. And that experience really paid off at this 1945 UN conference where they succeeded in getting women's rights into several measures of the um, several parts of the UN charter and, and where they created pushed for the creation of the UN's what became the UN's commission on the status of women. Um, and these were, were really than useful in a lot of these countries for pushing for you know women's suffrage, for pushing for women's civil equality under the law, um, a lot of feminists. And then you see in sort of judicial and legislative decisions that the 1945 UN Charter gets, gets used quite a lot as a way to push for these things nationally. And so does the 1948 declaration. And so does the, um, there were these 1948 inter-American conventions on women's political and civil rights that they also pushed at an inter-American conference in Bogota. And all of these things are getting used in Latin America to push for women's rights nationally. Um, so I think that in that respect, and, and then there, you know, you can see them also as direct forerunners for things like CEDAW that, you know, comes much later, that also gets, you know, utilized quite a bit. Um, I think, though, that the ways in which um, I really think that the Cold War, which emerged right on the heels of all this work, really did um, shape our narratives of of both feminism and human rights and led to that sort of amnesia that you're talking about this fact that we don't know these histories and haven't heard of these women before and didn't know that Latin American feminists were critical to this work um i think that stems from the ways in which and and the historian francesca de has done written great great you know has has um done excellent work on this topic on how the cold war itself really um, divided our understanding of the world into the first, second, and third worlds and really um, impressed this idea that feminism was a product of the first world of the United States and Western Europe. And with that, a very particular kind of, of feminism that we define feminism around this individual rights agenda. And so I hope that this work really opens up a different way of thinking about, you know, the history of global, of feminism, Um Globally, more broadly, where we can can start to sort of um, recover other forms of feminisms that were coming out of the global south that were just as important and vital. That that is just
0: a fascinating story that you tell. I I, I did not know this piece, and I think a lot of our listeners aren't going to know this piece. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really illuminating uh, hour.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.